Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. It's the last Full Throttle podcast of the 2020 World Superbike season. Greg Haynes here, Julian Ryder as well. And after all that then, Jules, waiting for five months, it doesn't seem long since we got going again with the rounds in Jerez, and uh, it's all over. Yeah, uh, talk about packing a, a lot into a short period of time. Mm. Uh, that was as concentrated a season as we've ever known. Yes, it was. And of course, culminates with Jonathan Ray and his six world titles. Thanks for joining us, though, everybody here on Full Throttle. We're available on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, the Eurosport website, and your favorite podcast platforms. I'm going to be saying that in my sleep, aren't I? And probably you will, Jill, soon as well. But what we thought we'd do on this occasion is something a bit different because we don't want to just repeat what we've said already on the TV across the weekend. So we're going to just go through and give everyone a bit of a score out of 10, certainly the top runners, because it has been a season of continued, not domination, domination in terms of retaining a title, but continued success for Jonathan Ray and for Kawasaki. They very nearly lost the Manufacturers' Championship. They have lost the Team's Championship. New contenders have emerged, and one familiar face in particular might not even be on the grid next year. Before we go into the marks out of 10 duels, what will you best remember World Superbike 2024, apart from, obviously the COVID chaos. Yeah, indeed. That's hard to go past, isn't it? I think, obviously, the continued domination, and you can say nothing else about Jonathan, Jonathan Ray. Yeah, there was the odd little wobble at, at the end of the season, a run of uh, non-podium finishes that you just don't expect from Jonathan. Any other rider, you wouldn't even notice it. But for Jonathan, you do. But there is the emergence of a new not quite a generation, but a gang of fast young riders. And they are um, disturbing the equilibrium, not of Jonathan Ray particularly, but of the rest of the podium contenders, I think it's fair to say. We have had a real mix, haven't we, of podium finishers and race winners this year. Let's go through the championship top 10, first of all. Really quick fire. I'll say the names. You give me a score out of 10. And then we'll go through and explain why you've given them that score. So I'll just pick the names at random, not necessarily in championship order. So let's start then with top rack Razgatioglu. 
it's it, it's easy to be deflected by the last weekend. I'm only going to say seven. Okay, Alex Lowe's difficult question. I'm going to say I'm go- I'm I'm going to say eight, and I think I'm being a bit generous. Maybe the benefit of the doubt, but eight. He won a race. Scott Redding nine. Chas Davis. Oh. <laughs> Again, the picture is distorted by the end of the season. Usually by the end of the weekend. I'm I'm going to be really miserable and say eight. Michael Vandermark. Oh, seven. Loris Baz. Seven and a half. <laughs> Leon Haslam. Very difficult to tell with the Honda guys. Very difficult. Um I'm gonna say seven and a half again, just be that that's code for I don't know. Michael Rubin Rinaldi? Eight. Alvaro Bautista. It's seven and a half again. Those Honda guys were joined at the hip for the entire season. I'll have to throw a BMW rider into here, even though they haven't finished in the top ten. Tom Sykes. Well it, a couple of pole positions, six. Eleventh overall was Garrett Gerloff in the championship, although it feels like more than that. No, but Second half of the season, we've got to give him an eight. And, of course, the one guy I've missed from the top ten quite deliberately, Jonathan Ray. You can give him nothing but a ten. Okay, so let's just go through and discuss that. Obviously, it's all down to opinion, and I'm sure there'll be mixed opinions out there. Let's start with Jonathan Ray, then. Mr. Adaptation, he's joined Kawasaki. He had to overcome the fact at the time that it was very much Tom Sykes' team. Let's not forget that. Shaky Byrne even said in the Eurosport coverage across the weekend, he felt at the time in 2015 that Jonathan Ray had left it too late because the regulations were changing. It had been developed by Tom Sykes. Jonathan Ray's made the team, moulded the team around him, didn't he? Years ago, Greg. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, it is, yeah, but that's almost a footnote in history now. Mm. How often does a rider join as the big kahuna to be the number? It doesn't happen. Mm. Well, that's true. You join as the new boy, number two or equal, and then it's a fight between teammates to establish who dominates and who sets the agenda for the team in terms of development or whatever. So, you know, uh, I'd, you always join as the underdog, as a new, as a new boy. Obviously, last year they had a massive psychological challenge, didn't they? It was so impossibly difficult for them to have to accept that we've lost this championship. And they did accept that they'd lost the championship. And that almost seemed to be a turning point. It coincided with Bautista's crash run. Bautista just crashing and not understanding why. And yeah, I mean, Jonathan Ray's been honest about this himself and the team. They said they were in despair. They weren't just getting beaten. They were getting their backsides kicked from here to next Wednesday. And they knew they couldn't touch it. <laughs> they have. So this year then, Scott Redding comes in, reigning BSB champion. We're all bigging up the fact it could be a BSB champion winning one year and then winning World Superbikes the next. That had never happened before. Could he follow in the footsteps of Bayliss and Hodgson by winning both in Britain and on the world stage? He still could. So He still could, of course. He still could. What's gone wrong this year then? Have Kawasaki won this title or have Ducati lost the title because Batista threw it away last year. I don't think it's fair to say Redding's thrown it away, no, do you? Absolutely. Un- totally unfair to say to say that. Mm. You know, we're, we're expe- oh, did we really expect Scott Redding to come in and beat Jonathan Ray over a year? Nobody did. 
it was blindingly obvious you did not have to be Nostradamus to say that, yeah, Scott Redding is going to win races for sure. But can he beat Ray over a season? So how can Redding or Toprak or anyone for that matter beat Ray over the course of a season? Is it going to take somebody to have to do what he's done and stay with a team and build it up around him and get that momentum going and the development going and so on? I feel that has to be part of it. Because you, it feels like it, yeah. You look at the team around Jonathan Ray and how solid they are. That is a Motor Grand Prix level centre of excellence and expertise in a superbike paddock, as we all know. There are other people, though, say, you know, further down pit lane, the, the race engineers, the chief mechanics, who have experience, big experience, and top level experience, and given the chance to actually solidify a team, to keep their staff with them, why shouldn't they challenge Jonathan Ray? I mean, nobody can tell us how good that Kawasaki is. You know, is it the best bike out there? Didn't look like it this weekend. Has it looked like it this season? Of course, they've had some amazing performances, but, okay, you know, they're not fastest through the speed traps anymore. So if we say he does not have the fastest bike as he used to, he has in the past, but he doesn't anymore. They've lost the team's championship. When you actually add together the points of the riders, which contributes to the team's championship, Aruba Ducati have won the team's championship. So you think of the manufacturer's championship, they take the points from the top rider, don't they, in each race. So that's pretty much Jonathan Ray in more or less every race this season. But when it comes to the teams, they haven't won it this year. So, you know, it's Jonathan Ray outriding the machine. It feels like it. I mean, they won the constructors' championship in the end by one point. One point. One point, Kawasaki. It's um, it it doesn't feel like it's the best bike. I mean, this weekend in Estoril, it seemed right from the start as if Jonathan Ray was having problems. Turn one, getting it stopped, the gearing for the corner. It it was obviously a problem. And the Ducati, you know, doing what Ducati is supposed to do: long, low, really stopping well very stable on the brakes into the into the hard braking areas um easier for the rider to manage it seemed turns out by the way that that tire jonathan ray was using was a softer tire and he said in the last race this is he said that that's the tire the yamahas were able to use and make work in their one two three in the sprint race it took him some getting used to didn't it we saw some leery moments early on and that rare error and some slow laps at the end yeah, yeah, very. By the way, he said uh, in the interviews, I've just been listening through to th- some of them, he said he had a bent bar, he said I think a foot peg was off. So as you said in the race, uh, yeah. he had a damaged motorcycle, didn't he? No surprise given the lap times he was doing. Right from when he got going again, he was never up to the pace he was. So it, again, you're not Nostradamus to realise that motorbike isn't, uh, isn't straight. I get the feeling as well that wouldn't, I know it's easy to say now, but I don't think that would have happened had he still been entitled to contention, do you? But I think he took a bit of a risk there knowing he, as a rider, had nothing to lose. He even said it himself, I had nothing really to lose. And he wanted to get that 100th win. And we had a day where championships are finished, nobody cares, you know, there's no extraneous factors. Mm. Let's go out and see how fast this is. And you know you've got to live with that over winter. Yes. You know, yeah. if you're the Ducati boys, if Jonathan Ray had thumped you after winning the title, no excuses. Turns out the Ducati boys thumped everybody else. 
and they're the ones who are going to have to uh, li- live with that over winter. Yeah, no Jonathan Ray podium this weekend. When did that last happen? Charles Davis then, third in the championship. Jules, he's only finished 32 points behind Scott Redding in the end. I know. It's, um, it's a cracking achievement again. But, but this weekend, mm-hmm. he actually qualified decently. Yeah. Yeah. For first time all year. Yeah. And that was row two. Yeah. And you, you find yourself thinking, looking at Chaz Davis, pulling away from the field today, going, God, that bloke's good. If only he'd have had two, three races where he qualified better. I mean, okay, it's easy to say it now with the benefit of hindsight, but he could have, well, could he have challenged Jonathan Ray for the title? At least he could have done what Redding's done. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, well, we know chances are good enough for either. But you also, this is why you end up understanding if not liking Ducati's reasoning for le- for not re-signing him. Uh, what I don't like about what Ducati have done, it seems to me they've let him know the decision very late on in the season. Yeah, you do get that feeling, don't you? Like it could have been handled a bit differently, maybe. Yeah, cutting down Chaz's options. You know, people have signed. Sorts yeah. Of oh, mind you, in this weirdest of years, I might be... Um, for once in my life, being uh, unjust to Ducati. Well, Scott Redding did say in his post-race interviews, one of the things he said, one of his quotes, which I've transcribed, was maybe they doubted him a little bit. That's what Scott Redding said. I don't want to take that out of context because Scott Redding has highly praised the team and Chaz Davis as a friend and as a teammate. You saw you saw Scott Redding's reaction when Chaz won this afternoon. It's, he was happier than he was last time I saw him win a race. Yeah, and he said as much himself. Yeah. Um, it, it Scott's um, a complicated specimen. He was very much the same when he was on the podium at Misano in that strange, wet and dry and wet again Grand Prix. And Bradley Smith stayed on slicks the whole race and finished it. And I went to see Scott Redding because I podium. And he went, bloody hell, how did Bradley do that? I'd have been on my backside if I'd have tried to do what Bradley did. What a ride. And that's all he was talking about, Bradley, not himself. Riders are Easy. intriguing specimens, yeah. aren't they? They really are. But but wasn't he that bit more relaxed at the end? Ducati had gone bang, bang, one, two. And Scott, there was the prime example, looking at Scott Redding, of he was going to the, the break, the Christmas break, whatever we're going to call it, happier than he's been for quite a while. It just goes to show, though, doesn't it? Every single moment of the race weekend has a bearing on the end of the championship, doesn't it? If you lose time in practice, you don't get your bike set up properly. You're further down the grid. If you're further down the grid, with the way this three-race format is, and the way it's quite clearly panned out now over the two seasons of having three races, with the qualifying Super Bowl session deciding the grid for two races, it is critical, more critical than maybe ever before in the history of World Superbikes, to be up at the front of the grid. It just seems like Jonathan Ray and Kawasaki, Reba and everyone else are one step ahead and by the time everyone else has latched on, it's almost a bit too late then. It's almost a bit too little, too late. And they limit damage when they can't win. We've said it before, haven't we? Hence the shock when Jonathan Ray threw the thing at the barrier in Super Bowl. Yeah. Yeah. And obviously then you have to think, you know. But at least he got a lap in and gave himself a, a midfield start. Poor old Scott Redding 
went down on the outlap and had to start from the back of the grid. Yeah, and all this had a bearing, didn't it, on the rest of the weekend. That's why the engine stopped and broke in the first race as a result of it being on the floor and being through, as you'd expect. Um, but Jonathan Ray by then could almost afford a crash in Superpole, having got himself into that position of only needing three points from the weekend anyway. Yes, but uh, looking at uh, Jonathan, I don't think he'll ever admit it, but uh, he was obviously, it looked like he was really, really anxious to get that 100th win. Yeah, he, he would have wanted... Get that one out of the way. Yeah, I think so, yeah. Because now he's got to go into the longest winter break for a long time, knowing, oh, I've not done it. It'll happen. Yeah, that, but it would have been nice for him to celebrate it over the break. was not achieved, and that a bloke like Jonathan Ray will not like. Okay, well, we've talked about Ray plenty of the weekend, of course, and many congratulations again from all of us at Eurosport because it is phenomenal what they are doing. What an achievement. Absolutely staggering. We've talked so much about Scott Redding, Chas Davis, a very unusual weekend. Stars of the future. Let's talk about the stars of the future because you've got people like Toprak, Rinaldi, certainly Garrett Gerloff as well. You know, the thing is, though, can, can they beat Ray over the course of a weekend and over the course of a season though you would say if you if everyone was in on a white bike in white leathers today or this weekend top rack that could have been jonathan ray in the first two races top, couldn't it top rack in many ways was man of the weekend i think it's only fair to say his first pole position it's that consistent my truncated view of the season and not having seen top rack much before i joined you uh for the porto mayo round i saw a rider who then basically missed three rounds because the Aragon rounds, the Yamahas just were awful at. And then there was crash, injury, out of the race and coming back while not fully fit. So it was only really, I feel, this last weekend of the season that I have personally seen the real top rack. It's true, and it puts into perspective how bad their struggles have been, doesn't it? Okay, Portimao, to be fair, he had a good weekend, didn't he, when we commentated there? Second and second, and then a crash. Um, but Aragon was a nightmare. Then again... All the should, but all the Yamahas. Yeah, yeah. Aragon. But, Jules, but, Jules, should any manufacturer be able to say, oh, that's not our track? No. And so, because Jonathan Ray and Kawasaki don't say that, do they? No. I mean, I am... I am who was it who said they didn't like Esther real much? I think Chaz, Chaz Davis said that before the event so uh, something i read that it's never been uh when he was racing their years ago going grand prix but it wasn't mm. a place he particularly particularly liked i bet he does now uh, but yeah i bet he's quite fond of it at the moment um and i think that is a, a very good point and certainly no rider if you were spot to be a champion you shouldn't you shouldn't be hearing oh it's not a track i go well at yeah and mick Dewan used to hate assen for obvious reasons. I think he only won there five <laughs> times in a row. So, yeah, I mean, that's poor for doing, isn't it? That's poor for mixed standards. Um, yeah, but as we say, it's all about limiting the damage when you can't score the points. But uh, it's funny in a way, looking at Jonathan Ray's results, fourth, fifth, 14th this weekend. Jonathan Ray not on the podium, but he'd already got the job done, really, hadn't he? Yeah. To, uh, and it did release him just to, uh, mm. to, to really just go for it in the second race. And he ended up crashing. Because he, he could see Top Rack, uh, sorry, Chaz, escaping, and he tried a pretty leery move. He got past Top Rack at turn one, but that Kawasaki wouldn't stop well. Top Rack got straight back. And as we saw several times at that corner, Jonathan couldn't make it stick. So he tried a leery move, 
elsewhere. The bike just said no, down it went, and uh, Jonathan's chances of the 100th went out the window. And again, it hasn't been perfect for Kawasaki. It's not been a perfect season. Of course, they've had troubles getting that bike stopped back at Barcelona as well, didn't they? If you remember when he went across the gravel on the Friday morning, but then they got it sorted out. But just thinking back now, you know, there's clearly something there they'll need to sort out. What is interesting, though, is that we hadn't had, unlike Barcelona, new track for the championship this year. Estoril would had no testing at all at any point on this track, as Alex Lowe said earlier in the weekend, until they all left the pits on Friday morning. And it does throw up some interesting circumstances, doesn't it? It certainly does. Um, it was it was very interesting. I think Rinaldi had similar problems. Not he wasn't invisible, Rinaldi, and he did show well uh, certainly on Sunday. But he, he he was nowhere near the factory Ducatis this time. Mm. Yes, that's true. Very much what you would expect, actually, from an independent team. Yes, he looked um, he looked like an independent team rider, not a uh, a soon to be factory rider. Yeah, and obviously Chas Davis in the nicest possible way, who's a great fan of Renault, as it must be said. But he will be pleased, I'm sure, deep down that he was able to go out like that. Let's talk a little bit about World Superbikes in general, Jules, because as you said, you've joined us for several other rounds, pretty much half the season, if not a little bit more this year. Now, if we hark back to the good old days, as people call them, you know, let's, let's be honest, it was the Keith Ewan and Julian Ryder days in World Superbike. The TV coverage was, it, sorry? It, Carl Fogarty days, <laughs> I think. <laughs> and Carl Fogarty, yeah, he, he was there as well. Um, but, you know, the TV coverage was very much ahead of its time then, and the behind-the-scenes access, and it was extremely popular. What's changed, in your opinion? Um, what's better? What's worse? And how can World Superbikes be made to be even more attractive or different? We were having a chat about this over breakfast this morning in the hotel. It needs to be different, of course, just like any championship does, whether it's bikes, cars, whatever it is. Um, yeah, what do you make of it all? We've got Moto Grand Prix. Why would you try and build another Moto Grand Prix? Exactly. Exactly. My thinking on the... The, the golden era uh, of Fogarty and co and lots of money and factory bikes. Mm. Well, that won't be back because there ain't the money around for a starter. So why is that? Let's just get into that for a minute for anyone who's perhaps new to us. The financial crash of 2008-09. When you go back to the late 80s, 90s, there were sponsors, there was money. You, uh, you, know, you could get a budget. You find me a budget now for a midfield supersport team. Go on, write a business plan for that. Oof, tricky. Yeah, to put it mildly. In terms of the entertainment thing, I always thought the two races a day was different. Mm -hmm. And Different's the word, isn't it? Yeah. Different. And you very rarely got two absolute belters on the same day. You've probably got one great race and one, okay. But you very, 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 very rarely got two bad ones on the same day. Mm, mm. Um, but the unique selling point for me of World Superback back in the day was wild cards. You know, the Shaky Burns, uh, the John Reynolds is, you know, in the UK, the even. Uh, you'd go to Italy, Ducati, you'd wheel out a couple of Italian championship riders, maybe uh, Lucchiari or somebody before we became a regular. The rider, you went to Australia in the early days, and you were going to come up against Michael Dowson, Peter Goddard, and McDoohan. 
You go to, <laughs> you know, you go to Japan and there's all these blokes you've never heard of on full factory machinery, all of whom were blindingly fast. You know, it's... Um, yeah, I mean, the regulars would be battling for sixth or seventh place sometimes at Sugo, wouldn't they? Yeah, I know. Uh, but that, unfortunately, pre that scenario presupposes strong and healthy domestic championships running to compatible regulations with the world's. Right, so why don't they then? Why don't we have the BSB Championship, the French Championship, the Aussie Championship, the Japanese Series, Moto America, the French Series, Spain, whatever? Why don't they all get together with Dorna, let's just say, for the sake of this argument? I know it's not this simple in reality. <laughs> it, it's not BSB's job mm. to um, support Dorna. No, of BSB's course it's not. job is to run a coherent domestic championship that will make good television and all crowds in, which it does because it's a very affordable championship for the punter. Because again, we've had another example this weekend, haven't we? Once Jonas Folger's been given a more updated bike, it's not that he's not a good rider, quite the opposite, but it's been a struggle, hasn't it, to get to grips with it this weekend. Barcelona it's, looked much better. That, yeah, that's that's the way it looked, didn't it? But uh, you know, let, let's say it's not the job of uh, Motorsport Vision, the promoters of the British Superbike Championship, to promote the World Superbike Championship. Yeah, of course it's not. Absolutely it's, it's not, no. Job. Um, you could argue it's that the, the job of homogenizing regulations is the FIM. But what Wayne Rainey needs with Motor America in the States to run a good championship does not equal what the factories need in a Jap all Japan championship, does not equal what Stuart Higgs needs for the BSB championship to work. So, okay, if we take Dorna for an example with the Road to MotoGP, and it's literally called the Road to MotoGP, it's the same company, isn't it, which happens to run MotoGP, Moto2, Moto3, the CV, Red Bull Rookies, and anything else they're involved with. Is that what it's going to require? Dorna, in this case, or whoever's running World Superbikes at the time, to set up a, a, you know, a production-based line like that? It, even in the glory days, when you went to Laguna Seca, the American American regs were different concerning mainly the uh, tuning of the motor on the inlet tract. And like line 1A, paragraph 1 mm. of the world, the world regs were, you, thou shalt not touch the inlet tracks. Totally different in the States. You know, so there's fundamental, and an American had to get a different engine. Mm. than what he was used to, to ride as a wild card in the worlds. And who's going to do that? So, really, there's no way that's going to change anytime soon, is there? And that would be the solution or one of the solutions to, you know, improving the wild card spectacle you've just talked about. Well, it's the, it's the only one, isn't it? I, mean, I, yeah. I have this dream occasionally of what world supers should be is there is, let's say, there's half a grid's worth of regular world superbike riders. Let's, let's say 12 of them. And they go around the world taking on the front half of the domestic championship grid. Okay, okay, yeah. And that, to me, would be so different from Moto Grand Prix. Yeah. And have Local, you know, supercharged, if you like, uh, wild card interest. That's my, 
I know it's technically impossible because of regulations, homogenization of regulations, and no doubt many other reasons. But that would be, if I, you know, if I were the dictator, that would would be what was happening. So is anybody anywhere at the moment in a position to be able to try and at least think about doing something like that, for example? Would it be the FIM, for example, the governing body of motorcycle racing? No, all, all you can do is the governing body. If you, say, if you're going to call a class superbike, yeah. then here are the regulations. Mm. Right, yeah, okay. You know, if Stuart Higgs doesn't like them, mm. he, he said, well, fine, no, we're not going to run a superbike championship. We're going to run a... Think of a name, you know. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, uh, you know, a teddy bear championship, the teddy <laughs> bear class, or doesn't matter what we call it, but it ain't going to be what you're talking about. You call it Brian. Call it whatever you like. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? But British Superbikes, without any doubt, as we were saying in the coverage of the weekend, is the premier national domestic series in the world. But it is the most different of all the others, isn't it? And it is very dependent on a very carefully written technical rule book that equalizes performance of the main motorcycles and also allows teams to stay competitive with last year's model. To keep costs down. Keep costs very sensible as you can. Mm, mm. Uh, while balancing performance, could then could that not be done in World Superbikes then in quite that same way? Um, I don't see why it shouldn't. If there was, but yeah, what's the objective? The factories wouldn't like it. Mm, true. They have their own. I mean, World Supers has its own balancing algorithm, doesn't it? To try and uh, yes, yeah, of course. But obviously, we're we're playing devil's advocate here and um, just throwing different ideas out there, aren't we? With this conversation. I would also argue, in my personal opinion, I don't know what you think, that World Superbike has been very balanced this year in, in the performance of the bikes. And obviously, some bikes are new, some riders are new on bikes, new to the championship. But if you actually look at the spread of podium finishes and race winners and the fact that nobody, those who had the opportunity to take concession parts haven't done it, because it's been so close and so close across the board, the closest for a long time, actually, across the board this year, um, you know, it's not like Jonathan Ray will finish second if he doesn't win. He will be off the podium. It's happened this year. It's happened. They've just done a better job, haven't they? Just look at this weekend. Exactly. Sprint race, we had a, a Yamaha clean sweep of the podium. For the first time ever, which none of us could believe. And we had a, also had a Yamaha winning the first race. Yeah. Rack. Mm. And then we had a Ducati 1-2 in the final race. <laughs> And we should also remember, of course, we've had a new rider in the championship coming very close, really, to winning it this year, or certainly pretty close, Scott Redding. He is a rookie in the championship. You know, we shouldn't forget that. We've had another new winner as well with um, Michael Ruben Rinaldi with an independent team. Yes, factory supported, but an independent private team. It's hardly been a bad season, has it? And uh, let's remember, this is the world championship, and you'd expect it to be a cut above any domestic series in terms of the general level, wouldn't you, for teams and riders, you would hope? That would be the expectation, and that's what it should be. And, yes, all these people have beaten Jonathan Ray in races, but none of them have really, really come close to beating him in a championship. 
Got- what was your what, what was your take, Jules? On you know, we had reverse grids, and you know, basically Kawasaki at the time. We're, let's be honest; they were being penalised. Is that fair, really, or should you maybe maybe give a, a, a step up to some of the well, those who are struggling, like they did in MotoGP, softer tires, more engine allowance, and all the rest yeah, of it? Yeah, do that, but penalising success never seems to me to be the point of a sport. And it didn't work anyway, did it? <laughs> it didn't have any effect. No, it's right through the history of motorcycle racing, I think probably motorsport in general, attempts to engineer, genetically engineer the results with the technical regulations have had precisely zero effect. The fast guys keep on winning. Uh, The the teams who know how to win keep on winning. It's, you know, there's, oh, we must do something. We must do something. So you put everybody through a load of trouble and expense. And the overall effect is zero. The thing is, last year when we did get utter dominance from another manufacturer with a new bike and a rider who is new in the championship, it was utter dominance from Bautista and Ducati, the new V4 Ducati. The difference there was one other bloke kept finishing second, if not third, and it was Jonathan Ray. No one else has been able to do that this year or any other year, have they? That is it. Nobody, if you want to be a champion, obviously you've got to be quick. You've got to win races. But it's that consistency of being there on the box every weekend, mm. which Jonathan Ray demonstrated this with the comeback of all time, frankly. Yeah. Or feeling cynical, Bautista demonstrated it with the um, the collapse, the cheap watch impersonation of all time. Yeah, It was... Um, it was completely astonishing. Yeah, he did. He, he threw it away, didn't he? There's no doubt about that in astonishing fashion. Jonathan himself has said, him and his team, you know, they were crying in their beer. They were devastated. Mm. They didn't. They hadn't experienced this before. How the heck? And Bautista was, you, you know, coming past with a cup of tea and a cigarette on and disappeared <laughs> into the middle distance. And mm. then... They could do nothing about him. Absolutely nothing. But people at the time were complaining and bitching about the Ducati in the same way they were about Andrea Locatelli and the Evan Bros Yamaha in World Supersport this year, as it's been proven very much in the last race at Estoril. Uh, oh, they can beat him in a dry race, and what a race it was. So, you know, as James Whittam said earlier in the season, sometimes certain people just do better. Yeah, because look at the Kawasaki team of Perry Reber and co. That's a good. That is expertise, uh, people with vast experience racing just as hard as the rider to win, just as competitive. If not more so in Pereira's case. And it's that coherent team, you know, palpably. Team isn't just a, a label. That is a knit mm. mm. bunch of people working yeah. with one mind towards the same objective. Yes. Well, in fact, Jonathan Ray hasn't even been home since Magnicor because of the whole COVID situation. He said there's a few people uh, quite closely associated to him who may or do have the virus. So he's just stayed away, you know, to make sure he can get Estoril sorted. He's been staying in his chief mechanic's house, Uri, just outside Barcelona. You know, it's a team, it's a family. It really is. And that's a good example of that. And that is absolutely the case. I mean, you saw it as well with Chaz Davis, the obvious emotion of his uh, Ducati mechanics in the last race. Mm. And Chaz has been there. But that's a sev- that was seven years Chaz has been 
in that paddock with that team. Mm, mm, and, yeah. you know, as you say, and it, always, it, it does tend to surprise me that riders get, well, they get a bit of momentum, get a career going, win something, and they, okay, move to the next class. But they happily wave goodbye to a, to a crew chief or a group that has got them where they are. It always seems a little naive to me. Now, we all know that sometimes it's impossible to take your whole crew with you or even some of your crew. But it also surprises me where people go without thinking about that. Now, in terms of thinking and the smartest man winning, before we sign off, what about Jeffrey Bowers in Supersport 300? I have to say, what an exciting discovery. I know the lad's name before I went... Uh, to commentate with you on the Porto Mayo race, and he popped up looking good there. And then after that, from Aragon onwards, it was like he was the one grown up in yeah. a group full of small, disorderly children. <laughs> That's a good way of putting it, yeah. Uh, frankly, yes. and it, it was the coolness. I mean, you wouldn't want. In a big feel of that, well, you know, I'm going to do this. Well, that's all very well you saying you're going to do that. But you have this total anarchy going on around you. Yet he still managed to work the plans, didn't he? Oh, I mean, some of the, remember the two wins in Aragon over the two rounds we had there. They were dominant, weren't they? And then he's had the close wins as well. But, in, you know, like this weekend in that race when he wrapped up the title, he just shadowed Daru all the way through the race. It's all he had to do, wasn't it? Slipstream is way past, having sat behind him through the last corner. In the middle, of, he was in the middle of the field with mayhem, motorcycles flying everywhere, people <laughs> running their own legs over. You know, it was, it was horrible. <laughs> Yet he still managed to make the plan work. Yeah. And then the cool move out on the last lap when he just drafted past a couple of them to make sure. Brilliant. Tremendous. Yeah, it really was absolutely fantastic, wasn't it? Uh, we did a selfie, of course, in the commentary box, Jules, at the end of the day. Um, in tribute, really, in recognition to the FIM president, Jorge Villegas. Uh, what was your take on that, just to go back on that? I, I actually quite liked it. Like, why not? He's supposed to be a fan. Yeah. yeah a, a selfie with the three uh, championship top three, wasn't it? On yes. The yeah. Top. Yeah, <laughs> and he only took one. He didn't take an hour or anything. He just said, "Yeah, boys, get in there." And Jonathan Ray did the same as well. So you know, I, I, I'm going. I'm going to give him a pass on that. I think that's fine. What's your general take after, before we sign off? Last question on on the FIM because I hear so many different opinions. You know, they they've been regarded quite frankly as a bit of a joke, aren't they? At, at times, and I don't mean that in a nasty way, but you know, the sort of you know what I mean? They're sort of they'll follow in Dorna's footsteps, do what they want them to do. They've got, what do the FIM actually do for people who don't know? Well, they they they're the governing body of the sport worldwide. Yeah, yeah. But they sold the rights to the family jewels to Dorna. Mm, yeah. Is you know for give us a load of money here <laughs> is Moto Grand Prix. Yeah. And you know the the rights belong to the, the broadcast rights and. A big say in how it's run and how the regulations are written belongs to Dorna. The FIM still do have a say as as part of the uh, Grand Prix Commission. Technically, technically, the FIM write the rules. 
but there are agreements in place or in Moto Grand Prix, you know, the, the motor, the, you have to have the agreement of the Manufacturers Association, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, you know. So there's not a conflict of interest, as it were. Yeah. Okay. It's interesting, isn't it? It's just interesting how the sport works and how everything sort of overlaps, though, doesn't it, in this game, in every area? Oh, of course. Yeah, I mean, the FI, you know, the FAM have basically sold their top championships Mm. to a company that will get it on telly. That's what it amounts to. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what, they've got a lot to be proud of at the moment, haven't they? There's been some superb action this season, uh, which just leaves me, of course, with a few seconds to be able to say thank you very much, Julian Ryder. It's been a pleasure. It's been a very, very strange, difficult, horrible year for many of us, for all of us, really, hasn't it? But at least it, we've had the distraction of some really, really good motorcycle racing. Glorious irrelevancy of some seriously good racing. And uh, mm. thank you for uh, looking after me as uh, on my, uh, <laughs> reabsorption into World Superbike. You have been very, very kind. Absolutely, no problem. It was a pleasure, Jules. And I have to say, the decision, if I say so myself, to buy two chocolate bars each. Yeah. For Estoril Sunday. It, that paid off, didn't I it? I think one of the crucial decisions of the season, Greg, myself. Have you eaten your minty chocolate bar yet, I by the way? Minty one, Greg. It was magnificent. <laughs> Jules, thank you very much. Um, I'm sure you're going to be busy uh, on eBay and uh, oh, I don't know whether you can get to any auctions. you still got your model trains going over the winter? Model trains, template toys and things like that, Greg. It's, uh, I was looking around for an example. I haven't got one in here. Yeah, just to explain to you all, we're on a, a video call here, so we can see one another. And I'm going to describe to you what Jules shows me. He's, he's sort of ferreting around at the moment off, <laughs> off to the left-hand side of the camera. It's uh, like a souvenir. What's that? Russian Space Museum from about 1970. Yeah, hold it up a little bit. Up, there's a red trail behind the rocket. Oh, Fine, right. Finest Soviet plastic, sir. Right, you're gonna have when this podcast goes out. <laughs> plastic. You're gonna have to tweet that, aren't you, so everyone knows what uh, it looks like. Aren't I? But, but Greg, that's the sort of rubbish I like to get involved with over winter. <laughs> and you go? What do you do? Do you go to auctions and things, or buy them on eBay, or what? I, I go to auctions. I've got a contact in Belarus who offers me that sort of stuff. <laughs> really? Yeah. How have yeah. you got a contact in Belarus? Oh, God knows, but I have. <laughs> I thought I'd just give everyone a bit of insight there into the other side of Julian Ryder. It's all, uh, yeah, it's, it's basically, it's auto-jumbly, antique fairy junk, mate. I can imagine you on something like the Antiques Roadshow or maybe more a scrap heap challenge, that sort of thing. My lifetime's ambition to, uh, you know, absolutely. <laughs> okay, Jules, I'll let you go because it's getting late on the uh, Sunday night after Estrell. Thanks for everything, though, and we'll see what uh, the next few weeks bring, won't we? Thank you for everything. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.